0: Our sermon text this morning is Colossians, uh, chapter 2, verses 6 to 15. Colossians 2, verses 6 to 15. Let me give you a moment to turn there, as I myself turn there. Then I'll read it for us. The Apostle Paul writes, Therefore... The whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with his legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Thanks be to God for his perfect word. Well, from 2005 uh, to 2019, there was an American game show hosted by Howie Mandel called Deal or No Deal. And in Deal or No Deal, uh, the single contestant starts the game show by picking one of 26 briefcases to own but not to open until the end of the show and each of the 26 briefcases contains one of 26 fixed amounts of money uh, ranging from one cent uh, to one million dollars the lucky briefcase and as the game show unfolds uh, the briefcases that the contestant didn't pick uh, get opened one by one Revealing how much the chosen briefcase is likely uh, to be worth. And as the briefcases are being opened, uh, the contestant repeatedly has to decide. Uh, He can hold on to the chosen briefcase containing an unknown amount of money. Or he can sell the briefcase uh, to the banker. The banker. uh, Who also doesn't know how much money is in the briefcase. And that's why the, the, the show is called Deal or No Deal, right? Because the contestant repeatedly chooses to make a deal to trade the briefcase to the banker, take his money and leave the show, or No Deal. Keep your briefcase and hope that it has more money uh, than the banker is offering you. A Deal or No Deal is a suspenseful game show Because it's difficult to estimate the value of the briefcase you've already got. It's difficult to know whether you'd be better off keeping what you have or trading it in for the banker's money. Well, imagine that you got on a deal or no deal, even though it's not running in America anymore. And imagine further that somehow, magically, without breaking any of the rules, you learned at the beginning of the show that the briefcase that you had picked was the million-dollar briefcase. You would be insane to sell the briefcase. Right? The banker is not going to offer you more than a million dollars because he doesn't know how much is in the case, but he knows that that's the most it could possibly be. And if you knew that the case that you started with contained the million dollars, you would be nuts to trade it away for something of lesser value. You would at all costs hold on uh, to the lucky million-dollar briefcase. Well, in our passage this morning from the Apostle Paul's letter to the Colossians, Colossians 2, 6 to 15, the Apostle Paul is urging the Colossians to hold on to the Lord Jesus Christ, whom they have received by faith. In verses 6 and 7, Paul encourages the Colossians that just as they have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so they must keep walking in him in a manner consistent with his lordship and with their union with him by faith. As we'll see, Lord willing, in verse 8, Paul urges the Colossians not to be taken captive by any religious ideas that aren't according to Christ. Paul doesn't want the Colossians to make a bad trade, so to speak. He doesn't want them to give away the million-dollar briefcase for anything of lesser value. And Paul's argument about why the Colossians should stick with Jesus, which really stretches from verse 9 to the end of the passage, it's really just a list of reasons that Jesus is the million-dollar briefcase. More specifically, it's a list of reasons that Jesus is the all sufficient Savior. From verse 9 to 15, Paul lists all that the Colossians have received through their union with Jesus in his death and resurrection. He talks about how they've been filled through Jesus, about how Jesus fulfills the Old Testament rite of circumcision, about how believers have been made alive together with Christ, how they've been forgiven because of his cross, how Jesus has triumphed over all their spiritual enemies. And Paul says this to make the point, since you've received all of this in Jesus, why would you trade him for anything else? a Franconia Baptist Church Paul's words in this passage apply directly to us as those who have also received Christ Jesus the Lord the God who still speaks in the scriptures he addresses us through Paul's words this morning and here i think is what God's word says to us, summarized in one sentence, keep walking in Jesus. Don't be taken captive. He's the all-sufficient Savior. One sentence, you might need some semicolons. Keep walking in Jesus. Don't be taken captive. He's the all-sufficient Savior. Three points this morning. First, keep walking in Jesus, verses six to seven. Second, don't be taken captive, verse eight. Third, Jesus is the all-sufficient Savior, verses nine to 15. First point, keep walking in Jesus. Look with me at verses six and seven again. Paul writes there, Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Did you know that these verses actually contain the first command that Paul gives to his readers in Colossians? So as we've walked through the text so far, we've certainly made application of what Paul has said. We've inferred what we ought to do based on what Paul has written up through chapter 2, verse 5. Uh, But technically, this is the first thing that Paul is explicitly commanding the Colossians to do in this letter. And notice it's connected to what Paul has said so far. Uh, Verse 6 starts with that word, therefore, right? That word moves us to look back at verse 5. Paul had written in verse 5, for though I'm absent in body, yet I'm with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Then verse 6, first verse of our passage, therefore, because your, your lives as a church are ordered rightly and because your faith in Christ is firm, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, right? You see, Paul is connecting the way that we start out in the Christian life with the way that we keep going in the Christian life. We begin the Christian life by receiving Christ Jesus, the Lord, in faith. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, uh, the way to become a Christian is by receiving Christ Jesus through faith. It's by believing what God says to you about Jesus, by trusting that you need Jesus' death as your substitute to pay for your sins. By trusting that God raised Jesus from the dead, that he's the king of the universe, and that he offers to reconcile you to God and to forgive your sins. You become a Christian by believing in Jesus, by receiving Christ Jesus, the Lord, in faith. Receiving him both as the savior that you need to be forgiven And as the Lord whom you now follow, the boss, the king of your life. And Paul says, actually, that's kind of how you keep going as a Christian as well. Did you catch that image that Paul uses there at the end of verse 6? Paul says that the Colossians, that we are to walk in him. That sounds strange to us. You might remember from several weeks ago when we looked at Paul's prayer, uh, that Paul had prayed that the Colossians would walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. And we said that the metaphor of someone's walk in the Bible, it really describes the goal of their life, right? Where are you walking? Where are you going? It also describes the manner of their life. How are you getting there? And it even describes the people that you do life with. Who are you walking with? with or besides. Well, Paul says at the end of verse 6 that the Colossians and all who have received Christ Jesus the, the Lord by faith, they are to walk in him or in Jesus. That is to say, if you're a Christian, your walk, the goal of your life, the manner of your life, and the people with whom you choose to do life, All ought to be determined by the reality of your union with Jesus. We'll say more, Lord willing, about what union with Jesus means as we walk through this passage. Uh, But just for now, notice that Paul wants Jesus Christ and the Colossians' relationship with him to determine everything about how they live. Brothers and sisters, are there areas of your life, aims or modes in your walk that are out of accord with the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Paul says that we keep going as Christians by believing, by walking in, by ordering our steps according to our obedience to, our faith in, the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul gives us some more descriptors of this walk there in verse 7. Look there with me, verse 7. Paul writes that the Colossians are to be rooted and built up in him, in Jesus. You just got to love these metaphors. Kids, kids, any kids here today? Can you raise your hands? James, you're not a kid. Appreciate you raising your hand though. Kids, so glad that you're here today. I am delighted that you are here in church with us. I am not a treeologist. I don't know a lot about trees. By the way, a treeologist is an arboriculturist. What a good word. Anyways, I'm not one of those. But I was reading this week about trees, kids. I was reading about trees. And I learned that trees have basically three sections, okay? So the top section is actually called the crown. I didn't know that. That's where the leaves are and the branches, the crown of the tree. And then below the crown is the trunk, of the tree, right? Kids, you, you know what the trunk of the tree, right? It's the big round woody part, right? That's the trunk, right? We all know that. And the bottom section of the tree is the roots. Very good. I know that you know that. Excellent. And the roots of the tree, they are so important. They might be the most important part of the tree. I don't know. I would guess that. Because the roots of the tree are how the tree grows, The tree gets its nutrients, gets its food from its roots. The roots of the tree are how the tree keeps from blowing over when the wind gets really strong. Well, kids, kids, let me tell you. Did you know that the Bible says that Christians should be like trees? Christians should be like trees that have roots... That go down into Jesus. The Bible says that Christians should be like trees with roots. That go down not into the dirt. But into Jesus. That means that Christians. The way that they grow like a tree grows. The way that they stay healthy like a tree stays healthy. And the way that they keep from being blown over. When wind blows on them. And when life is really hard. Is because they are connected to Jesus, because they trust what Jesus says, because they know that Jesus loves them, because they listen to what Jesus says, because they talk to Jesus by praying. So kids, if you want to be like that, if you want to be like a tree whose roots go down into Jesus who trusts Jesus, that grows tall and stands firm. Talk to your parents about that, about what it means to trust in Jesus, about what it means for your roots to go down into him, to trust that he's the king, that he's the boss, that you need him to save you from your sins. Paul says there that believers' roots are to go down into the Lord Jesus. He also says that believers are to be built up in the Lord Jesus. Perhaps it's helpful here to remember that Paul is not just speaking to individual Christians, he's speaking to a church, right? You don't build a building with one stone. Uh, you build a building by organizing lots of stones into a unity according to one plan, right? And that That is what the local church ought to be like, right? Many individuals retaining their individual identity, ordering themselves according to Jesus' instructions for one another's good. And by the way, isn't it interesting that right out of the gate here, as Paul is giving a command, he uses two metaphors, being rooted and being built. And the first two metaphors he uses are both metaphors of dependence, right? The tree depends on the soil through its roots. The building depends on its foundation as it's built up, right? Paul is very concerned about what we do. But prior to what we do, prior to how we perform, is on what we depend, in what we trust that ultimately we're going to be okay. And Paul says that ultimately for the believer, that dependence needs to be on Jesus Christ. Paul continues there in verse 7. He says that believers are to be established in the faith. He says, just as you were taught. Just as you were taught. Right? Can you see that for Paul, Christianity is both a personal relationship and a doctrinal religion? Christianity is both a personal relationship when your roots go down into the living person, Jesus Christ, and it is an ordered religion with a set of doctrines that need to be believed as they were originally taught. It's both. That's why at this church, we have a statement of faith that was written in 1833 which is the grandchild of a statement of faith that was written in 1689, which contains many of the doctrines codified in creeds that were written in the 5th century and the 4th century and the 2nd century, because what the Bible teaches hasn't really changed, even if some of its doctrines have become clearer to the church over time. Look at that last phrase that Paul uses in verse 7 after he says that they're there to continue as they were taught. He says that they were to be abounding in thanksgiving. Not marginal and occasional in thanksgiving. Uh, Not even regular and dutiful in thanksgiving. Abounding in thanksgiving. Overflowing, bubbling over the top with thanksgiving because of all that we have received in Jesus Christ. Paul says that's integral to walking in him. So saints, brothers and sisters, in case you have forgotten, here are just some of the things for which we have thanked God this morning in our singing. These are from our songs. We sang that God has poured on us in Jesus his immeasurable grace. Thanks be to God. We sang that God's kindness toward us is unfailing. Thanks be to God. We sing that God has removed his own wrath far from us. Thanks be to God. We sing that God's mercies to us are new every morning. Thanks be to God. We sing about how Jesus Christ is the bleeding sacrifice and the mediator who guarantees our acceptance before God. Thanks be to God. We sing about how God has reconciled us to himself. Thanks be to God. We sing about how God owns us as his children. Thanks be to God. We sing about how Jesus is full of pity, love, and power. Thanks be to God. We sing about how God has given belief and repentance to us. God didn't offer us something and say, I'll give it to you if you can repent and believe and then leave us there. He offered it to us and then he gave us repentance and faith. Thanks be to God. We sing about how we are complete in Jesus, each want supplied, nothing good or necessary denied to us. Thanks be to God. Brothers and sisters, we are to be abounding in thanksgiving. We will be happier, we will be holier, we will be less prone to trade the briefcase of the Lord Jesus Christ if we are abounding in thanksgiving for all that we've received in Jesus. Brothers and sisters, let's abound in thanksgiving to God as individuals as families, as a church, in groups, regularly, spontaneously, in our speaking, in our singing, in our praying. May the grace that God has poured on us in Jesus cause Franconia Baptist Church to abound in thanksgiving to him. That's how we keep walking in Jesus. That concludes our our first point. Keep walking in Jesus. Second point, verse 8, don't be taken captive. Look at verse 8. Paul writes, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. Christ. Right? Paul is urging us not to sell the briefcase. He's vaccinating us against any idea that threatens the centrality of Christ in our thinking or in our doctrine. And notice, again, the image that Paul uses. He doesn't say, A see to it that no one teaches you false things, even though that seems to be his point. Now, Paul says, see to it that no one takes you captive. One resource I read even said that it could mean, see that no one seduces you. All right, the the kind of false teaching that Paul's worried about, it's sneaky. It's subtle. It doesn't come in a jar labeled danger, false teaching that will take you away from Jesus. Right? In chapter 2, verse 4, we saw last week, Paul caused this kind of false teaching, plausible arguments. Right? it's It's not something... Uh, that couldn't fool you. It could fool you. So, brothers and sisters, this threat of false teaching calls for watchfulness. It it calls for vigilance and carefulness about the doctrine we believe, lest we be taken captive. Paul says specifically that the Colossians are not to be taken captive by philosophy and empty deceit. It's possible even to translate that phrase, the deceitful and empty philosophy. So I I don't think that this verse means that Paul is anti-philosophy in general. That doesn't seem to be the point he's making. He seems to be talking about a specific kind of empty and deceitful philosophy, maybe even naming a specific heresy that was threatening the Colossians. And he, he lists two specific sources of this kind of deceitful philosophy. You see there? The first source he lists is human tradition. Human tradition. Again, tradition itself is not the problem. Uh, in other passages, like in 2 Thessalonians 2, Paul uses that word tradition in a very positive sense. Paul is pro-tradition in another passage. But the history of the Old Testament and the history of the New Testament, and the history of the church, all confirm uh, that human tradition is one avenue through which false teaching sneaks again and again. So church, we must be vigilant that our teaching and our practice are not merely based on what we've always done or what so-and-so authoritative teacher from the past said, rather than on God's holy word. That, right, that doesn't mean that we should be arrogant and assume that we're like the first people who ever read the Bible. Right? We should certainly look at the tradition of the church respectfully, though not ultimate in its authority, but derivative because of the superiority of the scriptures. We cannot let human tradition usurp the authority of Jesus and of his Bible. Uh, The second source of false teaching Paul identifies here is something he calls the elemental spirits of the world. And I'll be honest, it is incredibly difficult to know what Paul is talking about here. I read quite a few commentators. They're confused. I'm confused. And even once you translate this sentence, it's really hard to know what Paul means by the words you've, you've picked to translate it. I think uh, that Paul is talking about invisible spiritual beings here, which he'll definitely mention later in the passage. Uh, it seems like the false teaching that threatened the Colossians, it really focused on placating or manipulating spiritual powers, like particularly angels that stood between man and God. And so I think Paul is saying, don't let anyone sell you doctrine that focuses on spiritual beings standing between you and God, unless it's Jesus, who is himself God and the one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, right? Whatever the elemental spirits of the world are, uh, the point is very clear. (coughs) There in the last phrase of verse eight, the elemental spirits are not according uh, to Christ, So, saints, there are lots of true and insightful and helpful ideas in the world, taught and believed by people who don't love Jesus. But we need to be careful that no idea, no philosophy, no tradition, no teaching shapes our thinking in a way that is contrary to Christ's lordship. Or in a way that's more central to our thinking than Christ's lordship. So, so friend, are there political ideas on the right or on the left that are more central to your thinking than the lordship of Jesus Christ? Are there ideas about money or science or religion or wellness or whatever that are more central to the way that you process the world than Christ and His infallible Word. I was listening to a podcast uh, put out by Christianity Today not too long ago. I believe all, most of the people featured in this podcast uh, were professing Christians. And on this podcast, these people talked a lot about mental health. Now listen, please let me be very clear. I believe in mental health. I think that is a legitimate category, and I believe that because of the Bible. I don't believe everything everyone teaches about mental health, but I think that's certainly a legitimate category to talk and to think about. In fact, the Bible leads me to believe that we can learn things about mental health from science and from medicine. I I believe that, but the people in this podcast, they spoke repeatedly like, because they had discovered the real truth about mental health, the words of the Bible were no longer good and reliable. They were no longer really relevant to their situation, right? If you, if you use the magic mental health category, the Bible, it really doesn't address you, Or you can ignore what it says. And I'm not saying that the Bible is everything that we need to know about everything. But brothers and sisters, Paul is warning us not to be taken captive by anything that is contrary to the lordship of Jesus Christ. Point number one, keep walking in Jesus. Point number two, don't be taken captive. Why shouldn't we be taken captive? Well, point number three, It's because Jesus is the all-sufficient Savior. Jesus is the all-sufficient Savior. Uh, Verses 9 to 15, they are so rich. Uh, Paul labors in these last few verses to show that Jesus superbly meets every need which false teaching offers to satisfy. So here's what I want us to do. Uh, In these last few verses, I just want us to see six ways that Jesus is the all-sufficient Savior, or six things that Jesus does uh, for his people through their union with him. Uh, First, Jesus brings God's presence. Jesus brings God's presence. Look at verse 9. Paul says, "For, or the reason that you don't need to be taken captive by false teaching, Is that in him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And you have been filled in him. Uh, Reason number one that Jesus is the all-sufficient Savior. If you want to have direct religious fellowship with God. If you want to be close to the God who made you. If you want his presence then the good news is that the whole fullness of God dwells in Jesus Christ, the person. He is God in a body. And listen, if you're a Christian, if you have believed in Jesus, then Jesus brings the presence of God to you. If you're a Christian, you do not need to be baptized in the Holy Spirit as a second experience of grace after your conversion to be close to God. You have been filled by the Spirit of the God-man, Jesus. Jesus brings God's presence. What does Jesus say in Matthew 28:20? Jesus says, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Christian, if you are in Christ and you don't feel like God is with you, you're not alone. There are plenty of people who were secure in God's grip, in the Bible, who felt acutely like God had left them. Read the Psalms. But if you feel that way, Brother, sister, I have a word from the Lord for you. God is with you. If you are in Christ, He will never leave you nor forsake you. As we sing sometimes, the clouds of depression. The clouds of feelings of being forsaken by God. The clouds may come and go. And storms may sweep my sky. This blood-sealed friendship changeth not. The cross is ever nigh. If you are in Christ, God is with you. Jesus brings God's presence. Reason number two, Jesus is the all-sufficient Savior, is that Jesus wields God's authority. Jesus wields God's authority. Look there at verse 10. Paul says, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. By the way, do you notice that Paul is weaving into this passage lines from the song that we looked at in chapter 1? Paul is saying Christians don't need to worry about whether there are spiritual rules outside of God's word that we have to follow in order to be okay, right? You don't need a patron saint or a household god or a witch doctor to be happy with you. Uh, You don't need, in fact, you shouldn't read your horoscope because Jesus is the head of all rule and authority. And if you've trusted in him, he's okay with you. He loves you. Jesus wields God's authority. Reason number three that Jesus is the all-sufficient Savior is that Jesus makes us clean. Jesus makes us clean. Look at verse 11. Paul writes, "In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ." Brothers and sisters, this is why we have to know the story of the Bible. Because in order to convince us that Jesus Christ is the million dollar briefcase that he is worth holding on to instead of anything else. Paul thinks that what we really need to understand is what the Bible has been getting at through the symbol of circumcision, right? We're not free to say, oh, that's kind of for the Bible nerds. And it's kind of weird, right? We, Paul thinks that if we are going to treasure Jesus Christ r- rightly, we have to understand his story. We have to understand the Old Testament, how Jesus fulfills the Old Testament sign of circumcision. So, what does it mean that Jesus, uh, that in Jesus, Christians have been circumcised? Well, as Andrew read for us earlier, uh, circumcision was the sign of the covenant between God and Abraham. Uh, being being uncircumcised was a picture of the reality that all of us are born spiritually and morally unclean, right? People are born, not circumcised. And the sign of circumcision indicated that if we're going to be in covenant with God, the uncleanness that we're born with, it's got to be removed. It's got to be taken away. And in circumcision, the removal of the symbolically unclean part, it was bloody. It was violent. And then the male was considered unclean qualified to be in covenant with God. Well, as Jill read for us in Romans chapter 2, circumcision was always a picture of a heart reality. Always what God has been after is the removal of the stubbornness, of the uncleanness in our hearts the uncleanness of our rebellion against God. That's what needs to be removed so that we can have a relationship with him, so that we can walk in his laws. And Paul is saying in Colossians, Christian, listen, you've been made clean. Your uncleanness has been removed because you are united to Jesus. And when Jesus died on the cross, you were not cut off, although you were unclean, Your uncleanness, your sin, it was violently removed in the death of Jesus, and now you are qualified to be in covenant with God. You've been made clean. Jesus is the all-sufficient Savior because He cleans God's people. Brother, sister, if you feel dirty, if you feel morally ugly, Ask God to make you know, to cause you to trust that in Jesus, you've been made clean. You're acceptable before him. You can live in covenant with him. Reason number four that Jesus is the all-sufficient savior is that Jesus makes us alive. Jesus makes us alive. Look at verse 12. Jesus says, I'm sorry, Paul writes, having been buried... "...with Him in baptism, in which you were also raised with Him through faith in the powerful working of God, uh, who raised Him from the dead." Keep going, look at verse 13. Paul says, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, death, sin, uncleanness, uncircumcision, all of those go together. You who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him. Listen, in the Bible, true life always comes from God. True life, eternal life, is knowing God and being in right relationship with Him. And because of our natural sin and uncleanness, and as Paul writes, because of our trespasses, because of our actual violations of God's law, naturally we don't have that life. We're dead. We don't know God. We are lacking in spiritual life. We're trending toward spiritual and physical death, separation from God for eternity. But listen, If you're united to Jesus in faith, then just as surely as Jesus died and was buried, so surely have you been made alive with Jesus. You've been brought back into fellowship with the God whom to know is eternal life. You are headed not for eternal death, but for eternal life if you're united to Jesus. Jesus makes us alive Reason number five, that Jesus is the all-sufficient Savior. Jesus forgives our sins. Jesus forgives our sins. What's that last phrase there in verse 13? Paul says, having forgiven us all our trespasses. Friends, this is why we can have spiritual life. Because our trespasses, the cause of our spiritual death, they've been done away with. Right? We have new spiritual life because in Jesus, God has forgiven not some of our trespasses, not only the trespasses we remembered to bring up to him. All of our trespasses, God, the only one who matters, he has forgiven them. And how did he do that? How did God forgive us? I'm glad you asked. Look at verse 14. It says that he did that by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. What did he do with our record of debt? Paul says, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Christian, listen. If your past sins plague you, Sins from which you are repenting. Sins from which you have repented. Sins which you have brought into the light and acknowledged before God and his people. If they plague you, if you want freedom from guilt over them, don't pretend like they're not a big deal. Don't avoid thinking about them at all costs. Picture the record of your debt in all its gory detail, nailed to the cross where Jesus died. That's where you find joy. That's where you find life. That's how you abound in thanksgiving. Not by refusing to think about sin, but by thinking about sin in light of God's holiness and of his unfathomable grace in the cross of Jesus Christ. Why is Jesus the all-sufficient Savior? Because he brings God's presence, because he wields God's authority, because he makes us clean, he makes us alive, he forgives our sins. Sixth and finally, Jesus defeats our enemies. Jesus defeats our enemies. Look there at verse 15. Paul says he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame, triumphing over them in him. So imagine that you lived in the first century AD and you lived on the outskirts of the Roman Empire. You were a Roman citizen. And imagine you heard that the barbarians uh, were invading the empire that hostile forces had crossed the border not far from your town, and they were burning villages and killing and abusing uh, civilians. Well, the good news that you would long to hear if you were a Roman citizen was that the Roman army had conquered and had disarmed your enemies. And when that happened, when the Romans would defeat their enemies, they would take prisoners from the defeated opposing army and they would parade them through a Roman town uh, as prisoners, putting these people who wanted to kill their citizens uh, to shame. And so you would see for yourself in the parade, which by the way was called a triumph, you would see in this triumph parade your defeated enemies that you didn't have to be afraid anymore. Because your foes had been conquered. It was called a triumph. Right? Paul is saying that through the cross and through the resurrection of Jesus, God has conquered and has made a public triumph of Satan, of all the Christians' spiritual enemies. You know what Satan gets called in the Bible Let me tell you one of Satan's titles. One of the things he's called is the accuser of our brothers who accuses them day and night before our God. Friends, listen, the power of Satan over people consists in their guilt before God because in our sin, we've sided with Satan against God and so God is just to leave us to Satan's wiles, to his awful dominion, right? Apart from Jesus, Satan can accurately accuse sinners before a holy God. But Christian, if you're united to Jesus, God has conquered and disarmed Satan. He has removed Satan's weapon, which is your guilt. God has publicly humiliated satan so that you might know that you can't be accused by him anymore right when we sing sometimes when satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within upward i look and see him there who made an end of all my sin brothers and sisters Jesus has brought you near to God. Jesus wields God's authority, and he's okay with you. Jesus has made you clean. Jesus has made you alive. Jesus has forgiven your sins. Jesus has defeated every spiritual enemy that you have. He is the all-sufficient Savior. I read this week about a 28-year-old woman in Uganda whose name was Amoti. Uh, Amoti was a Muslim. Until one Sunday morning, Amoti heard the gospel at her neighbor's house. And Amoti received Christ Jesus the Lord. And for one day, Amoti walked in him. I don't know, but my guess is that she was abounding in thanksgiving. Amoti was converted on a Sunday. She went to church the day she was converted. And when she got home, her family killed her. Listen, if if you don't believe in the malice of Satan, there it is. Brothers and sisters, Amoti made a good deal. Amoti is happier than we are right now. We will see her with jesus one day she made a good trade not to give up the all-sufficient savior even for her life may god grant us grace to walk in jesus not to be taken captive because he is the all-sufficient savior let's pray father thank you for your perfect word Lord, we bless your son, Jesus, as the all-sufficient Savior, Lord, as all we could need for all of eternity. Lord, help us as we've received Christ Jesus, the Lord, to walk in him. Root us in Jesus. Build us up in Jesus establish us in the faith just as we've been taught from your word deliver us from any false deceitful teaching cause us lord to abound in thanksgiving help us to sing your praises now through christ your son our savior amen